From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. For the second straight week, the Gators held the eyes of the college football universe captive, only this time around, the result went the other way. But despite the setback, the Orange and Blue still control their own destiny to reach the lofty goals they set at the start of the year. On today's show, FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry break down Florida's performance in Death Valley, how the defense hopes to recover, the differences between back-to-back electric atmospheres, the challenges presented by South Carolina, the preseason accolades rolling in for men's basketball, and the NFL's penalty woes in the PAT. Then, defensive lineman Adam Schuler stops by to discuss the keys for the defense to rebound, why he chose to transfer to Florida, and the challenges of being a two-sport athlete. But first, while most experts believed the Tigers would beat the Gators, very few thought it would play out the way it did, with the defense very much on their heels. So to open this week's roundtable, we asked Scott and Chris what they took away from a late night in Baton Rouge. Well, for me, Adam, it was kind of a double-edged sword for the Gators. Uh, Offensively, you know, I I saw a lot. I saw a team that was able to uh, keep pace with an LSU offense that is, you know, near the leaderboard in basically every major category. And, uh, you know, the Gators had a 28-21 lead in the third quarter, and they were moving up and down the field, and they continued to, you know, still move the ball well even after LSU tied and took the lead. So I think it was a, a great sign, you know, and continued development of Kyle Trask at quarterback. Uh, Emory Jones still getting some work, and I thought Dan Mullen did a really nice job uh, with a creative game plan, uh, just mixing some pieces in that allowed them to do that in a very hostile environment. Uh, communication was not really an issue like we saw with Auburn here at the Swamp the previous week. The Gators handled the noise and the crowd out in the Baton Rouge pretty well. Now on the flip side, uh, I knew LSU was going to move the ball. They're just too good not to. Joe Burrow is uh, having a sensational year. But I didn't see him giving up 511 yards. And the, the most striking is that, you know, LSU ran 48 plays. They averaged 10.6 yards per play. You know, I mean, that's a first down. They only faced four third downs the whole game. At LSU, in their notes, they said that was the most against an SEC or a ranked opponent and the third most in school history. And, you know, you, you just didn't see that coming to that degree against this Florida defense that entered ranked second in the SEC, 11th in the country. But having said that, they were without a couple of key players and John Grenard and, and Jabari Zaniga. They were really unable to get any rush at all. And the secondary got picked on and they got beat some. And, you know, uh, Ty Grantham last night, I was curious to see after Monday's practice what Grantham's mood would be. And he's such a fiery guy. You know, I didn't know if he would come in there, you know, just really disgusted and lighten some things up for some players. He was actually about as mellow as I've ever seen. I think they know they got heat out there uh, in a way that they they certainly, I don't think, felt they were going to get beat. And now they got to go to work and hope that some guys from injury get back for South Carolina and Georgia and uh, hope that they play better. I just think uh, 
you know, they, they missed some execution. They, they just didn't play well as a defense, certainly not up to what they like to say to Gator standard. LSU came into the came into the game with 26 drives, touchdown drives of less than three minutes. They had five in that game. And I'm, I'm with Scott. I mean, I, I think very few people probably figured LSU was going to go up and down the field like they had in some of those other games uh, against a defense that was as stout as Florida. They went and came in the game, uh, what, giving up nine and a half points a game. Yeah. Um, it's obviously to their credit, but uh, to the same thing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to echo some more Scott's sentiments. I mean, at one point, Florida scored touchdowns on four out of five drives, including those two that bridged the end of the first half and the start of the third quarter. So, you know, we were we were at the game. We know how loud that was. Full moon and Florida answered answered the challenge. I mean, that that communication was not a problem in there. Uh, with the exception, they were, there was yeah, there were some false start penalties, but that's understood. Uh, where Florida lost the game um, were those last four drives. And in a game where it looks like the last team with the ball is going to have a chance to win, you know, Florida, after they took the lead and then let LSU come back and tie the game, their last four possessions were punt, punt, interception, and turned over on downs. And the, they could have survived maybe those back-to-back punts, even though one of them was a, a three-play minus 21-yard drive. Um, where they had to punt out of their own end zone, and LSU goes and takes the lead. But, I mean, driving down Kyle Trask's end zone interception, uh, probably wasn't there, chuck it out of the back of the end zone, live to see another day. And then, of course, it's a two-touchdown series, or two, excuse me, a two-touchdown score when they turned it over on downs, I believe, from the two-yard line on a really strange kind of just a cluster kind of uh, option play at the end of the game. Um, but, again, that those last two drives, the, the interception and the drive on downs, one was 76 yards, one was 71 yards. So moving the ball wasn't a problem. And I don't think Florida thought moving the ball would be a problem against LSU's defense because Texas had, Vanderbilt had, uh, LSU had given up some yards. Uh, I walked Dan Mullen out of his press conference yesterday to the elevator and talked about how there were a lot of people saying this was a meaningless game because of the whole, it's a West Division opponent. Everything's still on the table. If you, He goes, there are no win- meaningless losses. There are no meaningless wins. But the fact of the matter is, uh, win or lose that game, it doesn't have a great impact on the rest of the season. Because let's face it, if Florida wins the rest of their games, they're going to be in Atlanta. So that's the goal ultimately anyway. And if you're in Atlanta and you win in Atlanta, you're the SEC champ, which is a goal, a big one. And you're going to the college football playoff almost assuredly. So everything's out there on the table. So there's not a lot that coaches can say to, make, to motivate these guys anymore. They're motivated, and uh, there's nothing that they lost from that defeat that they still can't go and get, and that's always a a powerful dangling carrot uh, for a football team. That's ironic, too, as you said. If you win all your games, you go to Atlanta, and if you win in Atlanta, you probably go to Atlanta because that's one of the college football playoff semifinal sites, so it's possible you end up playing two games there uh, if you're the SEC champion especially. So that's further down the road. I think the more immediate thing now, and the, the question most people have, is about that defense because Auburn was such an incredible performance, and then LSU was just the polar opposite of that. So from what you guys have been able to gather, and Scott, you mentioned hearing from Todd Grantham, uh, how is Florida going to address some of those issues? Because it was a pretty difficult day for them defensively. It was. And, you know, Grantham, he didn't dive too deep into specifics. One one thing that he did say that he didn't control the gaps. Guys lost some discipline or containment. They were out of position, opened some creases, and we saw Clyde Edwards-Hilaire take advantage of those. He had 134 yards just on 13 carries, two touchdowns. 
And then, of course, in the in the passing game, I mean, Joe Burrow was getting the the ball away really quick, and and the LSU receivers, I mean, they were open. Uh, Justin Jefferson, uh, he had over 100 yards. Jamar Chase had over 100 yards. Uh, LSU's offense really could do nothing wrong. And you know, again, you've got to credit the game plan that LSU came up with against this Florida defense. Their new passing game coordinator, Joe Brady. Uh, I guarantee you a lot of people saw what LSU did on Saturday night. That was the most watched college football game on ESPN in two years. And he's going to be a hot coaching commodity with what he's doing with that offense, uh, the turnaround they're having. And then, you, you know, going back to Florida, again, I mean, this is a defense. We know it's a good defense. The system that Todd Grantham has put in place in his, you know, year and a half here has produced results. Uh, they they haven't been getting the pressure on the quarterback. I mean, it's plain and simple. Uh, they did not get pressure on the quarterback that game. They allowed big runs, and that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. And he that's the thing he touched on. Look, we didn't impact, we didn't affect the quarterback. They found holes in our run defense. You're not going to win that game. And now they got to you know try to do it with still possibly without John Grenard and Jabari Zaniga or with hobbled John Grenard and uh, Jabari Zaniga. Uh, Dan Mullen said earlier this week that, you know, it looks like those guys, both with uh, ankle sprains, are going to be game-time decisions at South Carolina. So it just means, you know, the old mantra, uh, next man up. I mean, you always hear it in football, but it's just a reality. This time of year when guys start going down, guys like Kyrie Campbell and Adam Schuler in the middle, I think Zachary Carter. Uh, Jeremiah Moon is the guy who, behind Zaniga and Grenard, is probably their most proven pass rusher. But he was in coverage a lot in the LSU game, which negated some of his ability to, you know, to rush the quarterback. So it'll be interesting to see what Rantham maybe tweaks and who's back and who's not uh, on Saturday. Yeah, let's not minimalize the impact of losing John Grenard, who maybe at the midway point of the season uh, before that game may have been the SEC Defensive Player of the Year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy was having a phenomenal season. I mean, just splash plays all over the place and all of a sudden remove him from the equation. Um, you say what you said about Zaniga, who hadn't played since uh, early, I think, the first quarter of the Kentucky game. Now, having said all that, I don't know how they would have matched up against <laughs> if they would have impacted. You, you got you to think they would have in some degree, but LSU's got some stuff figured out about protecting their quarterback, and they got some stuff figured out about getting guys open. So maybe the, the only way we'll know if Grenard and Zaniga will have an impact is if that game of a rematch in uh, Atlanta possibly materializes. But, man, we got a lot of football to play between now and then. Yeah, no question about that. You mentioned earlier the environment there and just how well Florida handled it. I am curious, having been at both games, what was the difference, did you guys think, between the environment in the swamp, the environment in Death Valley? Inquiring minds want to know the compare and contrast on the two. I mean, I was sitting next to Scott in both games. And uh, I could hear Scott when I ta- had to say something to him during the LSU game. Um, I couldn't hear anything during the Florida game. Now, I'm not saying one's louder than the other because I guess decimal readings were higher for LSU. But I-, I could see that, of course. I mean, think about it. LSU had 12,000 more people at the game than Florida had at the Auburn game. Sure. So uh, I-, I can I-, I mean, I imagine it was. And like I said, it was incredible. It was the full moon was coming up off, you know, up in the uh, over the stadium. You knew it was going to be a crazy night, and I was on the field before the game 
I took a picture, went and stand, stood right in the middle of that, uh, of that tiger eye and took a picture of it and posted it on Facebook just and asked people, where am I? Um, and uh, I asked Strickland about, you know, he's been to obviously a lot of places, been in some leagues and what have you. And he said he's always thought that Tiger Stadium and Florida Field were the two best environments that he got to go to every year. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Chris there on the atmosphere. I mean, to me, I've always said, and I think the swamp, when it's humming, when it's buzzing, I've never been at a louder venue in all of sports. Uh, Tiger Stadium is right there with it, though. I mean, you, you, you know, you can say that the atmosphere there is every bit as good as the swamp. And I'll give the, the Cajuns, man, some credit. They know how to party. They know how to tailgate. And, you know, it's, it's, not, it's been a while since I've been flipped off by a five-year-old kid. But their, whole, their whole bus got flipped off by a five-year-old kid. I saw it. Yeah, we were on the way to the game. And, you know, I'm doing a little periscope, and there's a truck over by us as we're waiting in traffic right outside the stadium. And, well, Dad's got the middle finger up, and you look back in the back seat with the window down, and little Johnny has his middle finger up, and yeah. he's about five years old. <laughs> yeah, that, ha- that, that happened, actually. That happened. Yeah. Delightful. So it's, a, it's an atmosphere. I'm like, Chris, if you, if you love college football and you had never been to a night game at Death Valley, that's one to, you know, check off your bucket list because you can go all around the country you're not going to find a better one-day college football experience for a big game. And, uh, you know, I love those kind of games. That's what makes this job fun. And uh, the Gators hope that they have a few more before the end of the year. And it's one thing I took out of the game from both teams. I mean, there was a lot of conversation going into the game that, you know, it's kind of like the Auburn game. Not a lot of people were giving Florida a chance, but since they were at home, there were a few. Out there, most people, prevailing theme among the national media was, Okay, the Gators, you know, that was nice win over Auburn, but, you know, they're, they're going to lose this one. They may cover the spread, which was 13 and a half. Oddly enough, they didn't cover the spread. They lost by 14, but it was such a really good game. I mean, if you, you know, in 20 years you look at a score, people won't realize how close that game was until late in the fourth quarter. And uh, I think it was a, a really big step for Florida in some ways uh, in terms of, you know, just getting respect. Speaking of bucket list, we were in IHOP at 2 o'clock in the morning, the night before, and digging into my Belgian waffle or something, I look up, and here comes Banya from Seinfeld into the IHOP in Baton Rouge, and he's got a podcast or something that's called uh, It's Gold, and as, as in, it's gold, Jerry, gold, and and he was there because they, they do a discussion about great places to tailgate, and um, that's the one that they chose to go to, and they just happened to roll into the same IHOP uh, as 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 we were in at two o'clock in the morning. So it's on a lot of people's bucket list. Um, I counted; it was my eleventh trip to Tiger Stadium, I believe, and that one was I've been to it when it was empty with six thousand people left when Spurrier put a fifty-eight to three burger on him in nineteen ninety-three. I've been there when the Gators lost to when they were number one in the country and had won twenty-five in a row, twenty-five SEC games in a row in nineteen ninety-seven when Doug Johnson threw four interceptions. Uh, two nights after he uh, broke curfew and uh, when the stakes are enormous and it's a big, big game, um, that is one place to be. And there, it, it's funny for the last two weeks, the best place to be in college football has been at the two places where the Gators have played. And that's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, very much so. 
And speaking of big games, I don't think many people were expecting this week to be a big game, but now it, it kind of is because of South Carolina, what they did against Georgia, uh, really stunned everybody with the win in Athens, especially the way that it happened. You wonder, well, what does that mean for Florida's game? Now that South Carolina is clearly uh, a force to be reckoned with, they went and they beat Georgia with their third string quarterback through most of the game. I don't know if that says more about Georgia and less about South Carolina, but either way, it's a game that Florida now has to certainly be up for because Carolina will as well. And you know, Will Muschamp will love nothing more than a win against the Gators. So what do you see in that matchup? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, South Carolina went into Athens and basically Muschamp the Bulldogs. So uh, for Muschamp, he's coming off a big win over his alma mater. And now here the Gators are coming up to Columbia. And uh, to me, the, the key for the Gators is, like you said, Adam, uh, that I was in the hotel there. I was in my room when that game was going on. And I was next door to some players. I don't know who they were. But when Georgia or at South Carolina, you know, you could hear them go back and forth, you know, with emotion and whatever was happening in that game. We heard them break out some cheers when uh, South Carolina won the game. And Georgia, I mean, that's a loss that nobody saw. And it really, I think, recast people's vision of the SEC East and the Gators' potential now. Uh, the Georgia game perhaps doesn't look nearly as uh, scary as it did at the start of the season. But guess what? The South Carolina game looks a lot scarier than it did two weeks ago. So for Florida, they just have to regroup. They have to make sure that they aren't looking ahead to the bye week and then to Georgia uh, because there's going to be a big crowd up there. Uh, you know Muschamp and his staff, all those guys who were down here at Florida with him, they're going to want to beat the Gators. Uh, the quarterback situation there kind of fluid with uh, Ryan Helinski going down uh, in the Georgia game. There's some speculation that he's going to be able to play, but they've already lost Jake Bentley, their starter for the season. So that put Kerry and Jorner uh, in against Georgia. And, you know, he did enough to help him get down the field and, and win a game. But he's more of a running quarterback, not a huge threat. I don't think in the passing game, certainly not along the lines of Joe Burrow. And, of course, uh, you know, Gator fans are familiar with much champs offenses. So a lot of people will be thinking the Gators defense could probably get uh, healthy this weekend. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, I remember uh, uh, South Carolina had a 17-point lead in the late in the third quarter in the swamp last year before Felipe yep. Franks fashioned that a really big comeback. And I don't think it could have turned out any better for Florida, regardless of if the Gators had won or lost in LSU, they played well enough to be in the game. They could have left there. Let's say South Carolina had lost. They could have left there with enough saying, okay, well we, we, we hung with maybe the best team in the country, certainly the best offense in the country. They were able to sit in their hotel room and watch South Carolina beat Georgia. So they, they know how treacherous this game is. Sometimes coaches can, can have a difficulty getting a team's collective attention, especially coming after two straight games that Florida's had. You play Auburn and you play LSU. Now you're going to go to South Carolina. South Carolina, if that game had gone at everybody, as everyone thought, what was uh, I believe it was a 21-24 point underdog. Um, maybe there's a, a little problem getting the team's attention. I don't think that's the case at all. I, listen, I know nothing about no, any. I can't name you a, a doctor in South in the state of South Carolina. I do know Muschamp is from a little from that old school paranoia kind of thing. Um, he came out and said that this Holinsky uh, quarterback is playing, but I, I think Muschamp would say anything to make Florida have to work on two quarterbacks this week. So it wouldn't be surprise me at all if that guy did not play a down this week. You know, that's how he is. That's that's the kind of football guy he is. He is at that level and that Saban kind of mentality 
where you know he doesn't want to give away any uh, advanced knowledge. So uh, I'm saying right now that I think Joyner will be the will be the quarterback this week. But again, I cannot stress enough. I do not know that for a fact. I'm just going with a little hunch here. I want to turn our attention to basketball here for a second. We talked a few weeks ago, sort of scene setting the start of practice, and now it's really starting to ramp up, Chris, especially with the release of the All-SEC preseason teams. I know some people aren't crazy about giving preseason awards for games that haven't happened yet, but it seems to be you know pretty notable, not just that Florida is picked to finish second league behind Kentucky, but correct me if I'm wrong, it's almost unprecedented that a transfer is projected to be the SEC Player of the Year, which is what's been bestowed on Kerry Blackshear. Yeah, and obviously that's a it's a reflection of John Green. You say, look at the back of his football card. You want to know what kind of player he is, okay? <laughs> so um, Kerry Blackshear is a very, very accomplished basketball player. Uh, he was second team all, all ACC last year in a league full of lottery picks. And um, I've seen him daily in practice. I know I know what he's capable of. He's a post player who could score at all three levels. He's a rebounder, terrific defender, and a really, really good passer. And Florida goes from, I don't know what they would have been without him, but they certainly, they wouldn't have had a, a center without him, or they wouldn't have had a bona fide uh, post guy for the third year in a row without him. And now they're being picked as a runner up to Kentucky. And this guy's being picked as a potential uh, um, SEC player of the year. I had a, I got an email from, um, from a guy who votes on the, uh, on the AP uh, top 25 uh, college basketball. And they're putting their preseason team. And he goes, I'm, I'm putting Kerry Blackshear on my all America preseason team. Wow. So um, is, is he worthy of it? I mean, I'd seen that already before from, some of those far too early kind of uh, projections or whatever. But first team All-SEC preseason, Andrew Nemhart second team All-SEC. This just, just goes to what we've been talking about the whole time. This is foreign territory relative to expectations, both individually and team-wise. I believe whenever it is the, uh, you know, again, we're, we're less than two weeks away from an exhibition game against uh, Division II Lynn in the O-Dome on uh, October the 29th. So um, we're, we're really, really close. The preseason top 25 is going to come out. I fully expect Florida to be in the top 10 in that. I'd be surprised they're not. I mean, it's, it's not the end of the world if they're not. I remember Billy Donham used to hate being ranked high in the, in the preseason, even like when he was the defending national champion, for God's sakes. Um, so uh, the practices have been really, really competitive. Um, they haven't been perfect. Mike White has plenty of things that uh, he picks on him about, whether it's defense, whether it's the, the way they run offense, uh, remembering the offense for some of these young guys. Um, but there's some really encouraging signs, whether you're talking about the development of, of Scotty Lewis or the development of Trey Mann or um, the 35 pounds that uh, Jason Jatobo has lost since he got here. Quez Glover, freshman point guard from Knoxville. I don't know when they're going to get him on the court because for the first time since 2017, they actually have a, a backup point guard. They haven't had that the last two seasons. Now they have Trey Mann and Quez Glover as backups to Andrew Nemhard. So they're three deep at that position. And now they lost Gorjak Gak to a shoulder injury um, last week. So that kind of put something of a downer a little bit into their depth in the front court, which they haven't had in a, in a long, long time, but he's out. They say indefinitely. I mean, I, I would put the number two months, maybe, We'll see what happens, and that's tough for him because he really hadn't played very much basketball since he's been here, including all last year, and he was mostly injured the year before that. So um, we're getting close. Like I said, that exhibition game is October uh, 29th, and a week later the Gators open the season against North Florida on November the 5th. So I'm sure uh, we'll know a little bit more about him uh, next week when we talk on this podcast, and we'll know even more about it the week after that 
which will be the day after their uh, first uh, uh, preseason game. I want to turn our attention to the PAT now for this week, which was uh, basically inspired by Tom Brady and so many other people who've determined that football is becoming almost unwatchable, specifically the NFL, uh, just the, the rash of penalties. And, and I guess my question for you guys is, how how can football fix this? Because this obviously will start trickling down to college football as well. You could argue there's already issues there in, in addition. But, you know, you've got phantom penalties deciding games like we saw multiple times in the Monday Night Football game. How in this era of player safety and getting calls right and protecting quarterbacks, et cetera, et cetera, how does the NFL and football in general fix this? I watched a game the other day. It was the, it was the Cowboys-Jets uh, game. Horrible loss by the Cowboys, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, five straight plays with, pen- with penalties. And I, this is a this is something that I just every other sport has full time referees, full time officials. I remember in I'm trying to think what year I think it was in 1989. The Bucks were in their heyday of of bad. Okay, not not two and fourteen bad, but they went. I think it was 14 straight years where they they didn't win more than five games. And so this was this was in that heyday there. And I remember the uh, uh, Tom McEwen was the sports columnist at the Tampa Tribune, and Green Bay got uh, some kind of a ridiculous flag toward the end of the game against the, against uh, the Bucks, and it gave them an extra set of downs. They went they went and scored again. And McEwen knew people in the NFL, and his uh, lead in his in his column the next day was a podiatrist from Green Bay, Wisconsin, decided the Green Bay Tampa Bay game, and the guy was from Green Bay, a foot doctor. <laughs> Wow. And he threw a flag at the end of the game, like with 30 seconds left, they gave a set of downs and they score like Don Mikowski or something through a touchdown or whatever. So get your union together and try get, get I mean, have full time officials because uh, everything they've tried hasn't worked and they haven't tried that yet. And, you know, you ask where you can fix it, where you can call less penalties, but they keep coming up with more rules to call more penalties. And these rules are so confusing that it's, it's bad enough to be us watching the game and wondering what, what are they seeing? So imagine how confused the, uh, the officials are knowing that everyone's watching, wondering what they're seeing. If it was their full-time jobs, and I'm sure there'd be people who'd be willing to be full-time NFL officials. Granted, it's one game a week. You know, maybe you, maybe you get a Monday and a, and a Thursday game or something. Uh, uh, maybe you get two in a week. I don't think it would kill anybody to do that. There's not a bunch of slobs running around in their, in their shirts striped shirts but um that's the one i think um piece of territory maybe uh we haven't visited yet maybe it's something they need to talk about though i doubt they will because it's been uh something that's been suggested for a long time and nothing about it has materialized uh, i was watching the packers lions game on monday night and uh you didn't have to be an official or a rules expert to really understand why the lines were so mad at the end of that game uh with the hands to the face penalty it gave uh, Packers automatic first down in the game-winning field goal. I mean, and, you know, Booger McFarlane, he basically went off. And, uh, you know, I agree with everything he said. I mean, it, it's it's really starting to hurt the game. If you were on social media, I mean, all the comments were about the officiating. It wasn't actually a, wow, the Packers are driving to win this game. And they got a game-winning field goal at the end. And, no, it was overshadowed uh, by, by really bad calls. And, one thing that drives me nuts about the technology that we have now is that, it, I mean, I love when a bad call does get reviewed and overturned. But what about just blatant missed calls? Why can't why can't someone ring down, buzz the head official, say, hey, guys, we got to get this right. The, you guys missed it. Why can't you do that just as much as the other way? Because 
those are just as equally important. Uh, but I don't, I don't have a, you know, what Chris's suggestion makes sense to me. I think the NFL is in a place where it's hard to imagine that they don't have full-time referees considering the, the revenue that league generates. I mean, it would be an easy thing for them to do financially and make these guys part of the league and, and stress to them how important it is that they clean up some of the stuff that's going on right now. And so they, and they don't have to spend the week, like Chris said, being a foot doctor or a, a uh, dentist or whatever. <laughs> you know, one other thing I, I thought about is that the XFL is getting ready to crank up. Yeah. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk that the XFL is going to kind of just pl- let them play, man. They're not going to worry about you know, <laughs> some of this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing, though. If another league does ever catch on like this with some more old school rules, I mean, I, I can see a portion of the fan base maybe pulling over to that side finally. I, I've never seen this much dissent in my lifetime with NFL as I do right now. Uh, maybe it's just the times we live, you hear about it more. But I don't know. It's for the first time in my life, I think that another league, if it, if it ever can do it financially, maybe could uh, really compete with the NFL. Uh, it'd take a decade or so to, to build the fan base. But there's, there's certainly a, a movement right now among fans that the NFL – product is suffering compared to what we once knew what about this idea what if you got rid of shifts and motions and formations right get rid of those penalties and stop calling a holding stop calling a holding in general because it's so inconsistent there's arguably holds on every play but they're called so inconsistently that maybe the answer is just take out the calls I mean, it's so not, it, would, it would look like WWF or something could, every, every play. Which might be what the XFL tries to do, as Scott just noted. Maybe that's what the, the game needs to be more watchable. I don't know. I'm suggesting radical ideas because clearly, what's, uh, as Scott noted, what's happening is not working. So In any case, uh, holding will be called, I believe, in the Florida-South Carolina game. The rules will still be intact coming up this weekend. Uh, Scott and Chris will both be in Columbia covering that game. You can check out their content on FloridaGators.com and make sure to follow them on Twitter at GatorsScott at Gators Chris for analysis, updates, and more. Guys, thank you so much. Enjoy South Carolina. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. As tough as it is to compete at the Division I level in a single sport, being skilled enough to tackle two is incredibly rare. So consider Adam Shore the exception, as the grad transfer not only balances football with track and field, but is also pursuing a master's degree at UF. We were lucky enough to find a window to chat with Shure about his diverse athletic career and much more, but began by asking him to explain the defensive term that has Todd Grantham talking and Gator Nation wondering, what is gap control? Gap sound is just, you know, sticking to your assignment, standing your gap. No matter if you think the ball is, is, is away or something or, or, or hitting a different hole, until you're for sure that, uh, that the ball is away or gone, you, you should stay in your gap. That's what he means by gap sound. I know you guys talked as well about, you know, John being out and just the leadership he provides and maybe what was missing with him not on the field. Can you talk about what he does for that defense and why it was such a big deal that he wasn't out there? Uh, I mean, he does a lot. I mean, he makes plays. He helps the guys behind him. He knows the defense well. He knows the plays well. He helps guys with that. Just having somebody out there with that much experience and, and knowledge of, of, of the game and our system. So you guys had the Auburn game and then you had the LSU game, both of them in front of sold-out stadiums, loud as anything, college game days there. Can you just talk about 
the the emotional swings that come from playing in games that are that big, that loud in back to back weeks. It's a pretty cool feeling, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I I'm I'm pretty sure some some people get nervous. I mean, everybody does at some point in their life. I mean, I I I enjoy it. You know, I don't, I don't get nervous anymore. I just I mean, it's pretty fun though. You I mean, it gives you a rush and you get that drama. You see I'm, all those people cheering you on. You know, they're booing. I mean, it, it still gives <laughs> it still gives you motivation. Is noise noise? I mean, does it feel that much different when you have the noise in the swamp that's for you as opposed to the noise on the road that's against you? Does that have a different impact on you? I mean, I I think it does more so offensively, defensively. I mean, um, away, we're not affected by much noise because the Portland team um, crowd is being quiet for their offense. We're home. I mean, when they're yelling and stuff, I mean, it, it, it kind of helps us, you know, it gets the offenses at our stadium kind of off or tense. Looking back at, at your story, I'm going to talk about you a little bit. Can you tell us about your family, where you grew up, and uh, and some of the, the early times for Adam Schuler? Uh Me, I was born in uh, Orlando, Florida. Uh, I was raised in uh, uh, Altamont Springs, Florida, Orlando, Popka area. My mom being from Altamont, dad being from Orlando. Kind of, you know, went back and forth. They were split up after high school, so I kind of just went back and forth. Which I enjoy, you know. Got separate separate gifts on Christmas, so I, I enjoy going back and forth. <laughs> there, there are advantages, right? <laughs> I don't have a problem with it, but yeah, I'm, uh, Altamont is, you know, my 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 city. Altamont is friend. I, I I claim any brothers and sisters. The, the three sisters on my mom's side, I'm pretty close with and grew up with, and I'm the only child from from my dad. So a lot of people have older older brothers, and maybe they play football to get them to football. How did you start playing football? Since there obviously weren't any other guys in your family. My dad played football. Um, he, he went to US USF on scholarship. Uh, just uh, my cousin. My, um, I mean, I, I got an older cousin. Um, he's he's basically like my brother almost. Mm-hmm. We grew up together. We did everything together. So he was kind of like my brother. Though. He played football. I mean, I thought it was a cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I I started. When I was about eight. What position did you play when you started? Were you were you immediately put on defense? Did you play everywhere? Uh, I was an offensive lineman. I was like a right tackle in my peewee days. And then when I I was always offensive line, I started playing tight end. And I was I was tight end all the way up until my senior season in high school. Whose idea was it to, to flip you to the defensive side? Uh, it was my idea. You know, uh, going into my senior year of spring football, I was playing tight end and when I when I had moved back to Lyman High School, there's a bunch of uh, scouts uh, there to watch me play tight end, and the coaches didn't let me play one down at tight end. So I'm like, you know what? The next season, I'm I'm playing defensive end. So my last season, I just played I played defensive end. I, I was mad they didn't want to throw me the ball, so <laughs> I just I switched to defense. How hard was the transition to defense, or did it come pretty naturally to you? I'd say it came pretty naturally. It, it, it wasn't pretty hard at all. I mean, I realized that I was pretty good at it, so. I liked it. What other sports were you playing at that point? And I want to talk about your, your track and field here in, in a second, but were you just doing football and track, or were you involved in, in a lot of other things as well? Um, I was in uh, football, basketball, track and field. Even tried out for the volleyball team a little bit, but that, that ain't going so well. <laughs> no, why didn't volleyball work out for you? I was I was athletic enough. I just I just didn't really have time because <laughs> I was already I was already in uh, basketball and track. You probably had enough on your plate, I guess, at that point. How did you get involved with track and and why uh, why discus? How, how did that happen? How it started was uh, my dad had, my dad had told me about it. He, um, he was pretty good at it in high school. He told me about it. And my freshman year in high school, I had um, I think it was my freshman year. I had broken my hand, so I couldn't play football that year. And spring came around. 
and I joined the track team and I started throwing the uh, discus. I mean, um, that's what my dad did. I mean, I was pretty fast in high school, but I didn't think I was 100 meter fast. I was pretty big. I was probably about 6'2", 230. So yeah, I started throwing the discus. I didn't have a coach at the time. So I, I get on YouTube and watch YouTube videos and I, um, I started throwing and then they were like, oh, you, you're decent as a freshman. I, I think I my freshman year, I threw like one, 110, 110 feet. And that's pretty decent for a, a freshman without a coach. And I mean, I enjoy doing it. Um, but yeah, I mean, track, track is pretty important uh, to me. I mean, I loved it. You know, I, I mean, I did it more than I, I did football or any other sport in high school. When you were getting recruited, you didn't have an opportunity to compete in track there. So what made West Virginia the, the right place for you despite that? I really wanted to get away from my home. I didn't think I was mature enough, you know, to handle being close to home or, or anything. So Orlando's got all the fun stuff. You got the, you got the theme parks. You got everything you could want. What do you do for fun in West Virginia? <laughs> I, I, th- I thought the same thing when I first got here. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, but but me me personally, I mean, I'm a I'm a nature guy. You know, I, I, I like to fish. I like to, you know, hunt and stuff like that. Like lakes and stuff, you know. I, I mean, I enjoyed it. Like, I, I never had a problem with the with the town, you know what I mean? It was, it was pretty fun. I mean, my, my first couple of years, I mean, I liked the party, and they're known for their partying, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, mean, I didn't, that wasn't a problem. And then, I mean, yeah, I, I like the outdoors, you know? So you recognize that maybe you weren't mature enough to stay that close to home when you went to school, but then when you made the decision to come and transfer to Florida, what changed for you? Why was Florida the right place at the midway point of your career, but not at the beginning? Um, yeah, I mean, I knew from the jump when it came to my mind about transferring, which, which I had thought about it, um, a year before I actually transferred, but when it came to my mind, I mean, I'm like, I'm, I'm going back home. I mean, it, it, there's, there's no, there's no choice. I mean, I, me growing up, I was, a, I was a Florida fan growing up. So I, I hated Miami. I hated Florida State. So that wasn't an option. So, the, I mean, the, the only, the only place was if I'm, I'm, I'm transferring, I'm going home and Florida's the only place. And, and, and I knew that I'm, I was way more mature. You know, I, I can. I can handle being close to home. I mean, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't get into anything. I shouldn't. So it was it was without a doubt that Florida was going to be the, the choice. So when you came in, and again, you're a grad transfer, so you're, you know these guys have been together for a while. They've got their own chemistry. Who did you gel with immediately that made that transition easier for you? I mean, my position group, um, just a defensive lineman. And, and we, we're, most of us are all Florida guys anyways, you know, so there's, there's that chemistry, you know, in most colleges, you know, guys from Florida are really always going to stick together, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was mostly defensive line. I mean, when I first got here, because I was around them more. So at what point did you get involved with the track and field team? Because, you know, obviously you had that ability, but you hadn't done it in a while. So how did you get the ball rolling on being both a football guy and a track and field guy, too? Um, when I was transferring at first, I mean, I didn't know how it was going to happen. And I hadn't graduated at the time when I decided if I didn't graduate, I would I would have been ineligible to play football. So I had hit up my track and field high school coach and was like, um, I, I may need, you know, some some track and field options because um, if I if I would have been ineligible for football, I would have been eligible for track and field because I hadn't done it and my score hadn't had it. So if I would have had to sit out a year, I would I would have tried to get a scholarship or see if someone would have took me for track and field the first year and then get put on football for the last year, second year. Uh, that was one of my options. And then the second way was, um, you know, trying to find someone um, that let me do both anyways. But 
Um, so I had already contacted him and he knew that Florida was like my, my, my number one, you know, um, like where I wanted to go anyway. So, and he, he has a pretty good relationship with, um, Coach Oliver here already because, I mean, I mean, he, he knows everybody, like every college coach almost. I mean, so, um, he had, he had talked to him and Coach Oliver said, you know, Coach, Coach Oliver had let him know that, yeah, I mean, we'd love to have, um, I mean, cause they, they, um, they knew about me in high school and stuff like that. So it was like, yeah, we um we love to have him give him a shot. So that was already um squared away from the first time I contacted um my track coach, my high school track coach. He had already, you know, called him and put in a word for me. The feeling that you get from being successful in both these, how does it compare? Like, is there a certain high you get from football that you can't get from track or vice versa? Like, do they both do the same things for you or, or is it different? It's more the same now, actually. I mean, um, younger, it, it was different, you know, because um, to be honest, I mean, I, the, the football side was more natural when I was younger and I um, and I was successful at it. Just, just being me, like not really having to go hard for it. But in high school, I had to, I trained myself first two years and then, Train every day, like the second second two years for track and field. So when I so then you know track meant actually meant more to me just because I worked so hard for it. But now I mean it's it's it's, it's basically the same. I mean I I, work, I I worked hard for both of them. I mean in the spring I was going from practice to practice to football workouts in the morning, um, class, uh, track practice, then back to the stadium for football practice. Mm. Some uh, some weekends I have. Um, I, one weekend I had a track meet, came back that night. Next morning I had a scrimmage. Wow. I mean, it's it's it's, it's, it's more the same now, but just just because I work hard at both of them. Uh, so I mean, they they both bring joy, you know. Like if you when I when I reap the benefits because I work hard for both of them. Mm-hmm. Well, then balancing on top of all that, you also are in grad school. So I'm curious, what are you studying in grad school, and what opportunities do you hope that leads to in the future for you? Uh, I'm studying. Um, I'm in the um, it's called the MSM program here, a Masters of Science and Management, Business Management. I want to manage, you know, my own companies, you know, invest in my own things anyway. So hopefully that helps me with that. And I mean, and and, and if I need a job, I mean, you know, I'm pretty sure it'll set me up. You know, having having a master's degree from U- University of Florida. Mm-hmm. What do you enjoy doing when you get some free time? I can't imagine there's much of it with all the things we've just discussed. But if you do have an afternoon to do what you want to do, what would that be? Things have actually changed. I mean, last year, I mean, uh, I, I'd always give them a game, you know, if I have free time. But now, I mean, after I've, I've, I've been through everything, you know, I've, I've, I've done like I went through those seasons of two sports and then this and then grad school. I mean, to be honest, now all my free time, I'm trying to recover my body or sleep. I, I barely watch TV. I don't, even, I don't even turn my game on anymore, really. I just try to sleep or get some rest. And you, you could do this. This could be either football or in track. But I'm curious, what's the most embarrassing moment you've had in competition, whether it was something when you were playing peewee football or when you were you know, throwing discus last month, whatever it is? What comes to mind when you think about that? Well, in track, um, um, it, it's pretty embarrassing to to well to almost hit somebody. <laughs> I mean, walking around the track or something like that—that's pretty embarrassing to, to to hit him. Or or if you're sitting in the pit and 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 you throw on and then you you hit the metal and it's it's loud and everybody in the whole like track just looks over. That's that's, that's pretty embarrassing. Um, football. I mean, I mean, the most embarrassing moment I think is is getting pancake um, <laughs> <laughs> on, on the field. 
I'm, I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of one big time that happened in my career. I guess it's good if it's hard to think of one, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, or, or, or or I just don't don't want to bring it back up. That's my, true. Through my head. That's true. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I got hit a couple of times. I mean, everybody does. I, mean, I got pancakes a couple of times. So I mean, that, that's I think that's pretty pretty much the most embarrassing thing. Hmm. We talked a little bit about some of the uh, the fun stuff you can do in Orlando, even though you're an Altamont guy. Uh, are you a theme park guy? Are you a Disney, Universal? Are you into that or no? I never really got to um, go to them much growing up, just being, you know, what was it able to or, or really couldn't afford it. But when, when I when I got older, I mean, I, um, my sister started working at um, Universal, so I went there a lot since you got free tickets. Um, but, I mean, I'm not really much of a theme park guy I say I mean I like I like water parks though. I mean huh. when, when Wet and when Wild was, was open I mean I, that was the spot that's right yeah, Wet, Wet and Wild was the spot you know but uh, I'm more of a you know uh, um, I, li- I like to do things that require skill you know? <laughs> roller coasters don't count I love roller coasters I guess there's no skill to it though right or like competition thing like like, like that's what I like I'm, I'm, I'm a competitive guy so I mean if, if it's like go-kart racing or paintball and you know or, or me, and, me and my cousin going fishing you know have a competition like stuff like that bringing things back to football to to wrap up here preparing for this weekend in south carolina i remember last year coach mullen talked about the georgia loss that almost beat you twice because then you lost to missouri and he felt like it was a lot of letting the georgia loss hang around how do you make sure that doesn't happen in this case how do you make sure that lsu doesn't beat you twice and carry over to usc um, because um, for for one, I mean, it's 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 just one loss. I mean, and and for two, that I mean, we all know that if we went out, we we still can do everything that we set out to do in the beginning of the season. So I mean, and that's what he's been, you know, you know, interpreting on. You know, it's the fact that I mean, we still can win the East, and we we still can set ourselves up to to be in the playoffs. So I mean, it's it's, it's over now. I mean, it was it, it would have been great to win it. But losing it, I mean, don't doesn't really hurt us from what we want to do. Mm-hmm. Final thing for you, without uh, without giving away any trade secrets here, looking at South Carolina, what does the game plan look like for you and, and for the defense to create that havoc that you want to? And how does it maybe change if you don't have Jabari and John there ready to go on Saturday? Um, you know, just to get off the ball. Um, get off the ball, make the contact, don't wait for it. Um, you know, and, and, and play gaps on there and I guess, you know, keeping it tank, you know. Um I mean it's kinda of different based on um what what quarterback's gonna be in. You know, yeah, if it's F seven I mean we're we're gonna make sure we contain them good, you know, keep it from running. So, I mean it's 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 gonna switch up different quarterbacks. But I mean the main thing is especially for a D line, you know, just getting off the ball and playing gaps down, you know, keep it contained if you have it. And, and, and keep pushing the pocket and, and keeping your gaps in the middle. Well, Adam, we really appreciate your time. We uh, we know now that you are very busy, so this is valuable time for you. But we appreciate <laughs> it, and we wish you a lot of luck the rest of the year. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow the Gators as they look to right the ship against South Carolina Saturday at noon on ESPN and the Gator Sports Network from Learfield IMG College. Then come back next week as we'll break it all down. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Columbia.